be there today. Continuing our series in 1 Peter 3, making our way, finishing up chapter 3. Two more chapters in this wonderful book. Trust that you are being built up in the Lord and experiencing Him as we go through this wonderful book. I'm so grateful to God for His Word and for this this book and the things in particular He would bring to us through this book. Um, Very rich and uh, full of life-changing truth. We're going to read uh, verses 18 to 22 today. And Peter continues to teach us about living as elect exiles, living in a world that is often hostile, a broken world. And he's been addressing how we are to live. And we talked about last week, living in the fear of God and not the fear of men, but instead loving men by sharing uh, sharing the gospel, sharing the reason for the hope that's in us and loving people as we endure mistreatment from them. And so Peter is explaining this and building this and really building it all around the Gospel, around the truth of Christ. So this section fits in there as well as he brings truth to bear on our lives, on his readers' lives, and God through him to us. He's addressing our need to know how to live in this world as elect exiles, how to live in a world that can be opposed to us and and full of trials at times. So he brings this wonderful truth. So let's pray as we go before the Lord, as we are looking to hear from Him today. Let's pray and ask Him to pour out His Spirit and give us ears to hear. Lord, we just thank You for Your Word. And we thank You, Lord, for this book and this series that we're doing, Lord, and Your grace in it. Uh, Lord, we live by Your Word, Lord. Lord, more than food... Lord, we live by Your Word. And Lord, without Your Word, without You speaking to us, without us hearing from You and knowing You and being changed by You and living for You, there is no life. So more than anything else, Lord, more than food and clothing and shelter, more than comfort, more than anything, we need Your Word. We need You to speak to us. And we thank You, Lord, that You are gracious. You are a speaking God. And You've given us Your Word. And as believers, we have the Spirit in us and amongst us. And You want to speak to us. So we thank You, Lord. Oh God, would You speak to us today? We want to hear from You, Lord. Would You allow me to serve You, Lord? Lord, I thank You, Jesus, for Your blood that covers my sins and Your grace in my life to serve You and Your people. Allow me to be out of the way as I serve You, Lord. May You be highlighted. and May we hear from You May we be changed by You to love You and enjoy You and live for You. Do all these things, Lord, and more, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, 
were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. 1 Peter 3, 18-22. I don't know if any of you remember, I do remember the no-name storm of 1991, the Halloween storm, now called the, the perfect storm. Uh, it was an incredible event, and uh, Sebastian Younger in his book talks about this, and he talks in the book about something that went on during that storm, uh, uh, the harrowing tale of the Coast Guard cutter Tamaroa and its rescue of the downed helicopter crew. Do you, anyone remember that story? This is a helicopter crew out of Long Island that went out to save some folks and weren't able to refuel, had to ditch the helicopter. And in the seas at the time, because of this storm, it was the convergence, I think, of three different storms. It was essentially a hurricane, uh, a severe hurricane on the ocean. The swells were 100 feet at times from trough, trough to top the peak, a hundred feet. I mean, what's this building height-wise? Forty, fifty feet perhaps? Double that. That's, that's the size of the waves from trough to peak. And they were out in this storm. Uh, the cutter was out in the storm and they went to rescue these, these uh, men who were down in the ocean. They had been in the water, which was about 58 degrees for about five hours. One of them had been lost. One had broken both wrists, four ribs, and his leg. I think they had survival suits for some. One didn't. He had hypothermia. And the, the Coast Guard cutter came along to them in the storm and was able to maneuver alongside somehow amidst these incredible waves to come in sideways to the crew as they were surging up and down on the waves. At times, the men that they the cutter was trying to rescue, were 30 feet above the boat on the nearest wave while they sought to somehow come alongside. And they threw out cargo nets over the side and they had the crew, the, some of the crew of the cutter hold these cargo nets. Uh, the captain was endangering his crew because of the waves. They would at any time could have just washed the men on board right off. And they were somehow able to, to get the men onto these cargo nets and pull them up to safety. It was an amazing rescue that went on in that incredible storm. And I'm sure for those crewmen, when they finally got on dry land, they were very glad to have made it through such a storm. Well, today's message is entitled, Safely Through. And it's off of uh, verse 20 in this section, where it talks about Noah and his family being brought safely through really the most incredible storm on the ocean, the most incredible ocean event ever, the flood. And Peter draws in this story of Noah here, because he's addressing people who live at a time that we do, where often we feel like that downed helicopter crew in life. The storms of life are surging up and down. Things are happening at times. They can feel out of control. We can feel uh, so rejected by the world and alien in the world at times. It just is overwhelming. And so he brings this truth to such folks like us, who can be like this helicopter crew amidst the storm of trials of, of our own sin 
the evil of this world, active opposition of the devil and his minions, that's addressed in this section, the mistreatment and persecution at the hands of others, the suffering and brokenness of the world. God comes to us in this place. God comes to those who Peter knew and offers us a rescue from these forces, from these trials far greater and more effective than what Noah experienced and far greater and more effective certainly than what those helicopter pilots, uh, helicopter crew experienced on the ocean. He offers us a rescue in Christ Himself to deliver us safely through the storm. So we want to look at this passage and learn about this today. So we're going to talk about coming safely through, coming safely through in Christ, coming safely through like Noah, coming safely through in baptism, and coming safely through to everlasting victory. I think that's on your notes if you want to follow along. So first, Peter talks about coming safely through as in Christ, or in Christ, or because of Christ. He starts out, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ also suffered. The also there is is because Peter's writing to people who are suffering. He's writing to us, God's addressing us, who are suffering at times, who live amidst trial and difficulty. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ encountered sins and suffering. He encountered the impact of unrighteousness on his life. And so Peter puts Christ forward as an example and as a solution in our suffering and in our trials. Jesus so lived his life before the Father, relying on the Father, living in fear of the Father, rejecting fear of man, loving mankind, that he endured great suffering. He went through great suffering. He endured something much worse than any of us will ever experience. He he endured something much worse than name-calling, dirty look, loss of popularity, rejection by friends. He endured something much worse than that. He endured something much worse than Peter's readers were enduring, open persecution, even death. Christ endured in his suffering the mistreatment of actually bearing the sins of mankind on himself. He also suffered once for sins. He so associated himself with his people that God could rightly transfer the sins of his people onto Christ. He endured as the righteous one for the unrighteous, which that is us ultimately, He endured the holy wrath of God for sins. He so associated Himself with us that God could rightly pour out His holy justice on Jesus for our sins. Christ also suffered in a way more profound and worse than anything we could ever face. He didn't just face physical death, but a fate worse than than death. There is a fate worse than death. Many of us fear death and, and it is certainly a scary thing to die. We're, we're made in God's image. It just doesn't fit that we're to die. We can fear that. But there's a fate worse than death. Scripture says that the wages of sin is death. And it doesn't just mean physical death. It means a fate worse than 
physical death. The wages of sin, the, the just penalty, the, the just consequence, the just reward for a life of sin, a life of rejecting God as, for, for, as He really is. He's worthy of all our lives. He's glorious. He's good. The life of rejecting what is obviously good and worthy, the, the One who, who has been good, who surrounds us with His glory, and the, the, the just penalty for rejecting this obvious goodness and glory in Christ is death. It's exile from all goodness. To live apart from Him forever. In a sense, feel and experience the, the full ramifications of our decision. God must punish sin. The wages of sin is death. And it isn't just physical death. It's, it's spiritual death. It's exile from God. Life now, apart from God, can be terrible. Because He's good. Because we're meant to live in Him and with Him at the center. Dependent on Him and His grace entirely. And when we reject that, life here can be terrible because we're rejecting the the One we need most. But if we live our lives that way, now, He will in His justice. If we live our lives rejecting Him and rejecting His grace, we, he will in His justice give us the true and just penalty which is an eternity apart from Him. An eternity without Him. An eternity without His grace and His goodness. Exiled from Him. And there's nothing worse than that. Nothing. It's, it's unfathomable. We can't, we can't even understand what it's like to be apart from God for, forever. It's a fate almost too gruesome to mention, full of deep darkness and pain and regret and remorse that never subsides. That's the just penalty for sin. Yet Christ came to suffer for sin that wasn't His own. Christ came to suffer for our sin. Christ came in His suffering to bear that penalty, that eternity of exile and just punishment on Himself. And for any of us to endure eternity apart from God and that punishment is just unfathomable. And yet Christ took on Himself the punishment of thousands upon thousands. And God poured out His just holy wrath on Christ. And Christ drank that cup of God's wrath to the very bottom. And He endured on that cross something we'll never understand. I believe the angels are puzzled. They wonder about it. It's, it's beyond our understanding. He endured the punishment of sin on Himself. He suffered for sin. The One who raised the dead and healed the sick found Himself consumed by the wrath of God. He suffered for sins, righteous for the unrighteous, and perished on that cross. And He did it all with His eyes on His Father and His eyes on His beloved sheep. His eyes on you and His love. That is the measure of His love. You are His if you've recognized what He's done and and run from your sin and, and said, Jesus, I want You. I want to turn from my sin. I want to love You. Thank You for forgiving me. If you are His, He has loved you with that measure of love. And you'll never know the fullness of it. And we are called 
today and every day as believers to pursue the knowledge of that love, to grasp the immensity of that love. He did this. He suffered to bring us to God, the text says. He did this. He went through this horrible suffering. He also suffered something greater than we ever will. Once for sins, the righteous, He being the righteous, for the unrighteous, us, that He might bring us to God. He provided for us the ultimate rescue. He endured all this and He made it safely through for it. It says He was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. He was made alive. He was victorious at the end of it. He came safely through all this that in Him we might come safely through. The worst storm we could ever imagine. He provides the rescue for us. And we're like that downed helicopter crew in the ocean of difficulty and sin in the world. And actually there's an aspect of that that we experience as believers, but before you were a believer, you were in that ocean. And you were like that helicopter crew, except for one difference. Scripture teaches us that apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And without the Lord, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So there's one difference between us and the helicopter crew. We were dead in the water. And Christ performed this rescue. He jumped into the water and breathed life into us. Brought us to life to even recognize that we were in peril and respond to Him. And then He rescued us and brought us up on the ship of salvation and rescued us from our sin. He has rescued us. He has gone safely through that in Him we might come safely through. Because He did it perfectly, He is able to rescue us completely. All who are His. Not one will be lost. Not one will be lost. Not one will be lost. Where's your confidence? Is it in your ability to hold on to Him? Or His ability to hold on to you? He has said not one of His sheep will be lost. If you are His, if you've experienced that life, that ability to see the Gospel, to see Christ and treasure Him and trust Him, you are His. You have been born again by His Spirit. He did it. He rescued you in the beginning. He's going to see you through to the end. Not one of His sheep will be lost. He is able to rescue you completely. So place your confidence there. Yes, He calls you to respond, but that's not where your confidence is. Our confidence is in Him who made it safely through who who did what we could never do, who endured the cross, who paid for all of our sins completely, the ones from yesterday, the ones from today, the ones from tomorrow, they're already paid for if you are His. He did it. And He rose from the grave. He made it safely through. So in Him, we make it safely through. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. He died on that cross. His earthly body expired as He bore sin. But God raised him to new life and gave him a new body, a spiritual, yes, physical too, but a new spiritual body. He was made alive in the Spirit. And he is alive. And he's received the first fruit of of the new creation. 
He is the first one to receive what is ours. His rescue of us is not just for now. Yes, indeed it is now, but there's more to the story. There's a full rescue that, that means not just being forgiven as, as central important as that is, but also receiving new bodies and a new life and a new heaven and a new earth. Together, heaven comes down to earth in the book of Revelation. God dwells on the earth with His people and we live on a new earth with new bodies, free of sin, forever. The rescue is a thorough rescue. It's complete. It's radical. It's universe changing. And He's accomplished it. And He guarantees it because He was put to death in the body but made alive in the Spirit. And He is this guarantee of what's ahead for us. We belong to Him. And because of what He's done, He is our example. He's our inspiration, our substitute, our Savior, and our guarantee of this ultimate rescue to make it safely through. So where's your confidence amidst the trials of life? It must be in Him who has made it safely through. Anyone here ever go skydiving? Anybody? Andy. Wonderful. I never have. And I plan to never go. <laughs> and I don't know what your experience was like, Andy, but, but from what I understand, when you go to to uh, skydive for the first time, they don't just throw a parachute on you, put you up in the plane, and push you out. They tell you to pour, pull the cord at some point. They, they don't do that, actually. The, the most common way is they do what's called the tandem dive. They put you up on the plane, and they put straps on you. And then there's a coach who's there. And that coach has made probably thousands of parachute jumps to be a coach. And they strap you to that coach and I was watching a little bit on YouTube, there's some crank thing they do. You are secure. There's no way you can be unattached from the coach. You're hooked up a bunch of ways. There's something they crank to strap you in. I don't know what it is. And you are tight to that coach. That coach controls your parachute. That coach determines when you jump. That coach tells you what to do. And it's really funny if you watch on YouTube some of the, some of the incidents where the, where the coach is trying to get the person to go and they're screaming screaming bloody murder, like, ah, no, no. Um, but you jump with a coach who knows what he or she is doing, has done it thousands of times, controls every aspect, and you're just attached to the coach. And, it, and you're going to, if the coach goes, you're going to go, and you're going to make it to the ground. It certainly helps if you can trust the coach. Your experience, the quality of your jump is affected if you can trust your coach. But you are attached to the coach. You're not... On your own. You are attached to someone who has made it safely through those jumps thousands of times. And you will make it because they've made it. That's how it is with Christ. We are attached to Christ through faith. There's this connection that's a gift of God by the Spirit where we believe Him. And in that faith we are united with Christ like that coach and the jumper. And there's no detaching from Christ. And He knows what He's doing. He made the ultimate jump. He went through the cross and bore sin. He bore the, the most incredible trial we could ever face. He bore the, the most intense derision and rejection we might ever face. The worst of the worst, He went through and He made it safely through. And by faith we attach ourselves to Him for the jump. We might be petrified at times by the jump that's in front of us. But He has made it through. 
He will guide us. He controls all things. He will land us safely. And the quality of our jump will be enhanced if we trust Him and believe Him and obey Him. That we are attached to Him. He has made it safely through. We will overcome because He has overcome. That's what Peter's doing in this passage. That's what he's calling us to. To see that Christ has suffered. To bring us to God and we are attached to Him. And we will make it safely through in Him. And we are to face life with Him. And experience much of the same things He did in His suffering. But nothing to the degree that He did. And He will bring us safely through because we belong to Him. So why worry? Why be intimidated by life? Why faint at trials? As severe as they might be. And some of us are going through hard trials. Why despair of our sin? Why fear the opinions of men? Why waste our lives pursuing passing trivial pleasures? Why not live every day and every moment experiencing every thought, every feeling, and every action in light of Christ who provides glorious and guaranteed salvation? That's the call of God for our lives. Peter brings this to us. Peter also goes in in the next section, verse 19 and 20, talking about Noah as another example. Noah was a man who believed and obeyed God. He lived in an age where sin was rampant and horrible. That the evil of the earth was so severe, so horrible, so pervasive, so demonically inspired that God had to judge mankind and bring a flood to wipe out mankind. But Noah found favor with God. Noah was a man who believed God and obeyed. And so Noah was rescued. God gave Noah an assignment to to build an ark. He had to build an ark to prepare for this flood so that he and his family would be rescued in that ark. And so he built this ark amidst an evil generation. It says that he was a proclaimer of righteousness. I think in building the ark itself, he was proclaiming the coming flood and and the call to repent implicit in the ark. I also probably... I think also he probably was talking with his neighbors because I'm sure when you're building a big, huge, you know, what is it, two football field-sized boat in your backyard, people are going to have some questions about it. And he lived in in a generation that was thoroughly, pervasively evil. So it wasn't just like, oh, no, what you building there, buddy? That's interesting. It was like, well, you stupid idiot. You are the biggest loser there's ever been on the earth. That's probably the sort of interaction he got. Probably had vandals spray painting, you know, stuff on the ark. We don't know what went on, but it probably was very difficult. Noah lived. Did they have spray paint back then? I don't know. We'll find out later. Uh, But Noah lived in that age proclaiming righteousness in, in an evil world. He built the ark. And so Peter brings this comparison to his readers because they live in an evil age. And they are like Noah. I think we have an overhead, John, for this. There's a little table. Where we compare, there's a number of comparisons between Peter, first, uh, first Peter, and Noah's situation. Noah and his family were a minority, surrounded by hostile unbelievers. So were Peter's readers. Noah was righteous in the midst of a wicked world. Peter exhorts his readers to be righteous in the midst of a wicked world. Noah witnessed boldly to those around him by believing God and building the ark. Peter encourages his readers to be good witnesses to unbelievers around them. 
nor realize that judgment was soon to come upon the world. Peter reminds his readers that God's judgment is certainly coming, perhaps soon. At the time of Noah, God patiently waited uh, for repentance from unbelievers before he brought judgment. So also, in the situation of Peter's readers, Second Peter even talks about God waiting patiently. Noah was finally saved with only a few others. Peter thus encourages readers that perhaps few, they too will certainly be saved. For Christ has triumphed and has all things subject to him. So there's this parallel between Noah's situation and his reader's situation and our situation. To some degree, we experience the same. Throughout history, that varies in the intensity. And in the world right now, there are people who would very much identify with Noah would very much be proclaiming God's righteousness, would very much be building the ark, building, walking in the truth of salvation in Christ, doing God's work, and be ridiculed. And so Peter draws these parallels. It also appears that in Asia Minor there was a, a special fondness for Noah. Uh, it was evident in the culture. One of their towns, uh, Apamea Kabotas, uh, modern-day Dinar, was... Uh, perhaps named after the ark. It was in their, their belief system. They had coins actually minted that showed Noah with the emperor and things like that. So there was this interest in Noah, this fondness for Noah. That's part of why Peter brings this up. Noah has all these parallels. He says some things in here that can be hard to understand, perhaps, because of our situation, in comparison, comparing Noah to us and and Noah in the ark to Christ and baptism. And I'm going to do my best to help explain these things. Verse 19 is one of those verses that can be hard to understand. It says, in the, uh, Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, says. And then it says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when Noah's patience waited in the days of Noah. And you might be thinking, what is that about? In the spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison who disobeyed in the days of Noah. And the church has debated what that means. Uh, I'm going to present to you my best understanding of it. I don't think the particulars of this influence Peter's main point. The main point is that Christ has made it safely through. Noah uh, made it safely through. In baptism, we make it safely through in, in the truth of the gospel. Because Christ has made it safely through. That's the main point. But it helps to try to understand what he's talking about. I think it helps us understand what he means about this going to these spirits in prison. When did he go? When Was this before? When, when through Noah? Was it vicariously through Noah? Or was there something where he died, descended to hell, and preached to everybody in hell, and they had a second chance or something? Is that what's going on? Those are some of the ideas out there. Uh, what, what, what went on? Well, I think it helps us to understand if we understand that, that the context right along there, right around there, is about Jesus being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. So what's the context? It's, it's, the, it's the Gospel. It's His death and resurrection. So, so the context is being made alive in the Spirit in which He went. It was in His resurrected state. In His resurrected state, He went to these people in prison and preached to them. Also, if we read that the spirits in prison were those that disobeyed when? A hundred years earlier? No, during the days of Noah. There is a specific target group that this is speaking about. It's not saying everybody who's been in prison for all time. It's the spirits that disobeyed in the days of Noah. Also, if we recognize that most of the time when the New Testament speaks of spirits, plural, without qualifying adjectives and so forth, it means evil spirits not human souls. The word for human souls is different, usually. 
So it's speaking most likely here of evil spirits that Jesus went to. And if we look at the end of our section, we see that Jesus is exalted over who? Angels, authorities, and powers, right? It says in the end of it, end of this section, verse 22, He's exalted over angels, authorities, and powers. And when it uses that in Scripture, it's speaking of evil spirits. So Jesus, in His resurrected state, went and proclaimed His supremacy over evil spirits. The same evil spirits that in the days of Noah had influenced the world the way they did. Part of what went on in the days of Noah, part of the reason it was so evil was because there were evil spirits active in that day. And they they inspired the evil that was there. I think the link, too, is for Peter's readers to understand there's evil spirits in your day that are active and behind this persecution, behind these these things that are going on. And for us to understand, we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the principalities, and powers of this dark world, behind the opposition that we face are evil spirits. That's the reality. Now, there's God over that, but we must not forget the reality of spiritual warfare that we experience. That's what Peter's talking about, I believe, and that's the connection. He connects the story of Noah to the Gospel in this and reminding us that Christ is the one that brings the ultimate victory. Christ is victorious over all evil spirits, including those in the days of Noah. Then he goes on to make more connections with, with Noah. Noah lived in this time. Noah was an exile. He was belonged to God. He was an elect exile. He lived in the, in the time like we face. Perhaps more severe, but similar. And God delivered him. God delivered him via the ark, born on the waters, to safety. And we are called to be like Noah. We're called to live in this world trusting in Christ, knowing that those will, there are those who will oppose us, but knowing we are delivered safely through in Christ. We will be rescued, and we are to live as witnesses in this world. So safely through in Christ, safely through, like Noah, safely through in baptism. The next section, verse 21, says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Another difficult verse. Uh, Baptism now saves you. You might be scratching your head about that one. Um, Peter has things to teach us here. He connects baptism to the story of Noah. Just as Noah trusted God and was brought safely through the waters, in the sacrament of baptism, we express our repentance and faith in God and we come safely through and are brought to safety, ultimately through the resurrection of Christ. Baptism saves us not as a ceremony in and of itself, not as an external act of removing dirt from the body, but for what it represents, an appeal to God, for good conscience, repentance of sin. And we are borne up by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is an expression, a sacrament of the reality of our connection to Christ. It's an expression of our repentance from sin. It's the the biblical initiatory expression of our repentance from sin and our trust in Christ. And it is the truths in baptism that save us, not baptism itself. But we express that in this very important sacrament through which 
We express our connection to Christ through which we come through the waters of baptism and are raised with Christ. So it's another picture of being brought safely through through this wonderful sacrament, this God-given sign, this Holy Spirit-inspired picture. The reality of our union with Christ, this connection we have with Christ and Him making it safely through is expressed. I hope this is helpful, some of these things, in terms of clearing up the understanding of Scripture, but that's not what I'm interested in. I don't think it's what the Lord's interested in, ultimately. It's what comes from understanding Scripture, encountering the truth, is the edification that it works in our lives. So as we understand this, talking about baptism, as we understand what it meant with Christ preaching to the spirits and all that, there's there's an impact of that truth that's to happen in our lives, where we recognize that Christ has made it safely through and that He has been raised from the dead and that we are born along on, through life on the, the resurrection of Christ as the ark was born along by the water. The resurrection of Christ bears us and delivers us through this life. We live as those who are connected to One who has been raised from the dead, who is resurrected, who has made it safely through. His resurrection is our resurrection. His victory is our victory. And we experience this reality now. There's an ultimate reality to come, too. The fullness of that resurrection. But we're connected to Him now. And we're going to make it safely through. We're going to make it safely through as a believer. He will see us made, making it safely through because He has made it safely true. Our baptism is a remembrance of this truth of the Gospel points us to this. We have the deposit of our deliverance. We don't have the full measure of it. But it's guaranteed. It's going to happen. It's kind of like if you had a rich grandparent who gave you a billion dollars. You would be very happy. But that rich grandparent puts a stipulation that you don't get the fullness until you're 30 years old or 60 years old or whatever age you want to use. In the meantime, though, you get to draw on the an interest made on that money. Would you be happy with the interest on a billion dollars? It'd be plenty of money, wouldn't it? You'd be very grateful. You wouldn't. You'd be able to endure and wait till you were 30, I think, to get the fullness of it. That's what our lives are like. It's more than a billion dollars, though. It's better than a billion dollars, and it has been put on deposit in Christ for us, and we experience the interest payments right now. If you are a believer, the Spirit is in you. There's a taste of the resurrected life. That new affection for God, that ability to believe God, that ability to treasure God, that ability to start to see life and the world and things in light of Christ and the Gospel, that transforming work, that ability to love one another genuinely, people that before you, wouldn't have, you would have had nothing to do with, that's the interest. That's the Spirit in you. That's the resurrected life in you. And we draw on that now, and then we will soon be with Him and have the fullness of the deposit. We are safely through in Christ. If the band could come up as we close. We are safely through in Christ. We are safely through like Noah. We are safely through in baptism. In the finishing part, verse 22, we are safely through to victory. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. 
We are brought safely through in Christ and He has finished it. He has finished the work and He reigns now in the spirits, the evil spirits that, that, that perhaps could harm us, the, the difficulties of this life. Those that, who would oppose us are under His reign and He is controlling all things for His purposes. He has made it safely through to victory. And His victory is our victory. He rules over all the fallen angels, all the spiritual powers, every authority. He's given all authority in heaven and earth. All things are under His feet. So we can live differently. We can fulfill the Great Commission because of that. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. He rules and reigns over these things. And so there is freedom and power now to go forth in the Gospel and to see lives transformed. For us to live our lives victorious. For us to share Christ in hope that the one who is in authority will so work in their lives that their eyes will be open to Him. That authority, that victory has wide-ranging implications. It touches every aspect of life. It touches every aspect of understanding of self. Every aspect of relationship with the church and with believers. Every aspect of job, vocation, every aspect of relationship with the world, every aspect of culture, every aspect of how we relate to others, the, the truth of His victory touches all these things. And it's meant to do so in our lives more and more. He has made it safely through. And we are brought safely through in Him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for an impartation by Your Spirit of the reality of this truth for everyone here. I pray, Lord God, You would affect our hearts with this truth in such a way that we will be changed in how we live. We will be changed in how we think about ourselves. We will be changed in how we relate to Your people. We will be changed in how we relate to those around us who don't know You. By Your Spirit, Lord, would You work in these ways? Would You change us in our thirst for holiness and Your ways and Your glory in and through our lives? You have made it safely through. By the power of Your Spirit, may we live each moment in light of this unshakable reality, we pray in Christ's name.